This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And man, I am excited about this episode. We have an absolutely crazy adventure in store. We are about to kayak from Greenland all the way to Scotland across one of the most dangerous stretches of water on the planet. It's a journey of over 1,200 miles. Are you ready to get your paddle on? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is the British explorer, world record breaker, and frankly, nuts adventurer, George Bullard. He's one of the world's most elite endurance athletes, polar explorers, and expedition guides. Plus, he's just an all-round good bloke. He's really funny. He tells a cracking story, and you're going to love hanging out with him. So George has done some crazy things in his life, some amazing things. At the age of 14, he swam across the English Channel in freezing water. And then after that, added in a swim around Manhattan and Lake Zurich for good measure. At 19, he completed the longest unsupported polar expedition in the world. We're going to hear more about that. And since then, he has completed dozens of other expeditions all over the place, from Svalbard to the Amazon. He is the real deal. But the story he's going to tell us today is perhaps his boldest, craziest expedition yet. No one had ever kayaked from Greenland to Scotland before. These are waters that even big trawlers, big boats won't go in. They're so dangerous. No one thought it was possible. Most people thought he would die trying. And as we'll see, he came pretty close. But in undertaking this perilous mission, he was also going to help solve a 300-year-old mystery, the mystery of the Finman. And we're going to hear more about that soon, too. It's an amazing adventure, and he tells it really well. He even throws in a pretty good impression or two along the way. So please go and connect with George right now. His Instagram and Facebook is at George Bullard Explorer. And he's an amazing guy to follow because not only does he post incredible, high-quality imagery of his expeditions, they're really fun to follow along, but you can also follow in the outdoor madness of his normal life, such as delivering a cake to a friend by horse, going for a run in his boxer shorts in sub-zero conditions, and just taking cute photos with his little puppy Treacle. But the other reason why you should connect with him is why he's doing all this. George is on a mission to rewild humans, to reconnect us to the natural world. And I know how important that is to all of us in this community. So with that in mind, if you're wondering what your next trip should be, let me tell you, it should be with iGo Adventures. That's www.igoadventures.com. George set up this company to curate one-of-a-kind adventures with purpose in the natural world. He will personally make sure that your dream trip comes true. And let's be honest, that's pretty cool. An adventure designed just for you by one of the world's greatest adventurers. Check it out, igoadventures.com. And also check out his website, georgebullard.co.uk, where you can book him for motivational speeches and you'll hear in a minute how good he is at that. And you can also check out one of his other cool projects, City Camping, which does secure pop-up campsites to get urban kids outdoors. It's an amazing project. And that website is city-camping.co.uk. So we're just about to get started. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, subscribe. And if you can, head over to your favorite podcast app and hit that five-star review. It makes a huge difference to the show. It only takes a couple of minutes. You don't even have to write anything. Just hit those stars as many as possible. You'll be helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, adventure, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can sign up for the newsletter and book trips inspired by the show. But don't worry about that right now because the water is dark and cold and we are about to step off the Greenland ice cap and paddle quite literally into the unknown. 
Get ready for the voyage of the Finman. But first, let's hear about that first big Arctic trip which made George's name. So the first big trip I ever really did, it was a, a trip organised by British School Exploring Society that was then, now British Exploring Society, and they just do amazing things with young kids. I left school, then went down to Antarctica, and it's phenomenal. That's I came back from Antarctica and I met this guy um, called Alex and he he said, look, I've got this trip and I am looking for a teammate. Do you want to come? And I was like, yes, love to come. Wait, hold on. What is the trip? (laughs) That is what you have to love about George. He is just up for it. Some guy he didn't even know asked him to join an expedition he knew nothing about and he didn't hesitate one second. I was 19. When I was a teenager, the implications of doing this sort of trip isn't necessarily the first thing you think about. It isn't like the remoteness, the hostility, the the vulnerability, the exposure, the risk of death, the risk of never seeing our friends and family again. All of these these risks and things aren't the first thing that you think of. I was like, oh my God, another adventure? I'm in. Alex and I met for the first time in the IGS. Um, I gave a talk then, he came along. And then second time we met, we were packing our sledges. And the third time that Alex was in Stansted Airport, as we flew off to the Arctic, uh, we flew off to Greenland to go and walk much under one and a half thousand miles, fully unsupported. So no resupplies, no outside help. Literally, we got we got dropped off for the next 113 days. We walked basically. There was a mixture of emotions of you know pure excitement, unbridled wonderment about what the next four months, next 113 days was going to entail but then there was that sense of fear i was totally naive about the a polar expedition of, of this nature i didn't even know whether i could cross-country ski i didn't really know whether i could even pull a sledge i mean it's either gutsy or it's just daft and i'm not quite sure which one which one i fit into it's gutsy if you make it and it's daft if you don't And as we'll see, that's a bit of a theme for George's trips, but we're not going to go into that adventure too much. That's a whole other story. And George is actually coming back on later in the year to tell it to us. I will say, though, that this trip broke the world record for the longest unsupported polar journey in history. And he did it at 19 with a bloke he'd only met a couple times before, not even knowing how to cross-country ski. Gutsy and daft. After university, he became an expedition leader. He set up iGo Adventures, traveled the world many times over until eventually he came across a book called Searching for the Finman by Norman Rogers. I'll link to it. You might be interested to read it at the end of this episode. And inside that book was a mystery, the mystery of the Finman. And once George read about it, he was hooked. The book documents this story. You know, it was back in 1728. So it was simply people from other places were landing on the northeast coast of Scotland in kayaks. And you can imagine what the locals at the time thought. You were like, you know, what are you doing? Where do you come from? How have you managed this in such a small, vulnerable craft as a kayak? And so it became legend. It really did. It became like, you know, a myth. These guys had come from where they come. They come from Finnmark in northern Norway. You know, the legend of Finman uh, really grew. And it inspired my mate Ollie Hicks and, and I to put together this journey to add fuel to the fire of speculation about these Finmen. Because the Finmen, which is described in Norman Rogers' book, and the kayak and all the equipment that you can go and see today in the museum up in Aberdeen, is not from northern Norway, from Finnmark. It is from Greenland. So we set out to unearth this ancient myth, and not quite prove that he did because we weren't on a skin and bone kayak alone carrying you know paddling the same kit wearing the same kit so we could prove it we could certainly add fuel to the fire of speculation that he might have paddled the entire way from greenland to scotland across the north atlantic ocean and so that is what we set out to do yeah you can either dress up as a ferocious ocean crossing or you can as i like to do dress up as some caribbean island hop so we hopped from greenland to iceland and a caribbean tropical route and we then paddled around the north coast of iceland and then paddled from iceland across what is known as the devil's dance floor i like to call it the silk route (laughs) the silky voyage uh across the ocean from Iceland to the Faroes. 
And then we hit the Faroes, this, you know, beautiful palm-laden white beach Caribbean-esque island, which is covered in rock and wind and, you know, wave-broken bays <laughs> not much else. And then we went from the Faroes to Scotland. That, that was the route itself. And it was, you know, again, another extraordinary adventure. And, you know, almost the smallest slice of me that wants to go do it again because it was that fun. But then I remember that it was, you know, 66 days of um, pissing into a bottle, going to the loo on a plate, praying that um, I was going to make it to the other side. You know, the risk profile was so, so fine. That one moment you will be absolutely fine. The next moment you're fighting for your life. And there's very little in between the sheer odds of us completing this journey were not in our favour at all. You look at other journeys that are done at sea in a kayak in such a vulnerable, exposed craft as the kayak is that your chances of survival are pretty minimal. No one had ever done it before since the time of those finmen washing up on the beaches of northern Scotland almost 300 years ago. No one had ever attempted a crossing of this stretch of ocean in a kayak. It was just too dangerous, the chances of survival too small. This is one of the most dangerous stretches of sea on the planet. If you fall in, you'll freeze in three minutes. If the kayak capsizes, you're dead. The largest wave ever recorded was here, smack bang in the middle of their route. A 62-foot monster. Storms rage nearly all the time and come out of nowhere. So don't believe George's sarcasm for one minute. This was no Caribbean island hop. Any wave that was bigger than five inches would kind of come into the boat. And it basically meant that the kayak was more of a submarine than a kayak. It was you know, cooking in that sort of environment, living in that environment, sleeping on board the boat was terrifyingly difficult, I think I'd describe it as. We couldn't stand up and walk around because the kayak would flip over. There was there was no dry space. We didn't have like a cockpit at either end to get into to like to sleep and to rest you know we literally couldn't move when you leave land anything that's sort of out of your arm's reach is unaccessible you know unless you put yourself in big danger so you know the, the kayak itself was just an extraordinary vehicle extraordinary craft to be crossing such a large open patch of ferocious ocean this isn't like the mid-atlantic sort of um, tropics this is the north atlantic ocean where you know, big boats, ferries do not go because it's so rough. And actually, two warm bodies paddled this tiny kayak across it. And it's it was just against every all the odds, really. So, of course, preparing for this was a really intense period. George was about to risk his life in the most dangerous sea kayak expedition in history. All he was doing was preparing, getting ready, training, or something like that. Actually... I had never kayaked in an ocean before. <laughs> uh, the only kayaking training I'd done was in London, commuting along the River Thames in a blow-up kayak. Wait, what? Commuting to work on a blow-up kayak on the River Thames? He's not even joking. I will post photos of this, so do check it out at Armchair Explorer Podcast. He is literally in a suit kayaking down one of the busiest urban rivers in the world. It's bonkers. But George says it beats the hell out of the smelly armpit cram of the London underground in summer, so perhaps he's onto something. But that's not even the point. The equivalent of preparing for this expedition by kayaking along the Thames is the equivalent of preparing for an Everest descent by walking up to your second floor bedroom with a backpack on. Nonetheless, only a few months later, George found himself on a plane to Greenland, back to the start of that crazy journey that made his name all those years ago. But this time, Instead of heading off on foot across the ice cap, he was heading in the other direction, east, with a paddle in his hand and a prayer on his lips. The adventure was about to begin. So when I got to this precipice, that was the moment when I, we lowered this, this kayak into the water just off the Greenland coast, at the edge of the ice off Greenland, and sort of jumped inside it. It was, again, that mixture of excitement, you know, what lays ahead. And uh, there was a mixture of regret having just got out of a perfectly serviceable warm um, <laughs> warm environment where there was food on hand and everything was perfect to getting into a kayak where I just couldn't stand up couldn't walk around going to the loo was just a nightmare everything was a complete nightmare on board really. 
I was scared almost for my life. Suddenly, with this you know, black polar ocean beneath you, and the ocean was black, it was dark, it was aggressive, it was sinister, it was freezing. And, um, you know, that I was at the back of the kayak, I was steering, navigating my way through these icebergs. And it, again, it was just deeply concerning when when the sailing boat, which dropped us off at the edge of the ice, disappeared over the horizon. Suddenly you feel alone and you feel unbelievably scared for your life. Yet on the flip side, I've never felt commitment like it. You paddle to the other side. Or you die. You paddle to the other side or you die. Quite a binary choice, that. But it just shows you how committed they had to be. There were no second chances, no options to turn around, no support crew. You paddle or you die. That became their mantra. And it was something they would be telling themselves for a long, long time. The first leg was 150 miles due south from Knighton Bay in Greenland to the northwest tip of Iceland. They would paddle for 18 hours straight, put out inflatable airbags on either side of the kayak to stop it tipping over, zip a cover over their cockpit, try and get a few hours kip, which is impossible, and then back at it. 60 strokes per minute, 3,600 strokes an hour, almost 200,000 strokes to get to the other side. We were quite far north. And especially at the beginning of the journey, it was actually 24-hour sunlight, which was, I guess, a real blessing. And then as we kind of got further south, and obviously later into the season, into September, uh, when we actually finally landed, it was obviously very dark. The nights were very long, and they're very scary, <laughs> very disorientating. And when you're tired, uh, you know, you start hallucinating <laughs> and seeing things on the horizon, which definitely aren't there. But the more we progressed towards Iceland, I think the more I brought myself back into the moment and was very grateful for being fed, watered and warm. We had just paddled a kayak from one country to another uh, across the Denmark Strait, something which, you know, never been done before. Probably, if anyone's got any sense, would probably be never done again. But (laughs) but the fact was we'd done that and there was no passport control. No one sort of checked us, scanned us. No one told us to fasten our seatbelts or where the emergency exits were. We did that totally under our own steam. And that was an incredible experience. We arrived into Hornvik Bay. Hornvik Bay is a deep bay on the northeast coast of Iceland in a nature reserve called the Hornstrand Inn. There are no cars. There are very few humans go there. It's very remote. And we, in fact, the best way to get around there is by sea, by boat. And we just paddle into Hornvik Bay, which is the largest, one of the largest colonies of Arctic foxes anywhere on the planet. It's a very deep bay. It was surrounded on either side by these huge cliffs, which are alive with birds. And when I say alive, I mean bursting to the brims. It is like a chorus of, it's like a perpetual chorus of football hooligans. <laughs> Never draw breath. <laughs> That's probably the best way that I can describe it. And at the very back of this bay is a black sand beach. You suddenly you look off the side of the kayak, there is hard ground. And it's like that feeling suddenly of safety, of security, that you've made it. You, you, you've, you've reached dry land again. It is like realising that you can live again. They crawled up that beach and collapsed. Their legs could barely work. They'd been cramped into the kayak for so long. Tired, wet, cold, but grateful for being alive. They pitched a tent, made a campfire and slept. Felt the ground beneath their feet, that security, that relief from having made it across the first difficult leg of the journey, from having lived. But soon it was time to set out on the second leg, an absolute marathon 440-mile paddle across the north coast of Iceland. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path 
and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. The north coast of Iceland is like a crocodile's teeth. So it's got lots of peninsulas that poke out the north coast. And it's it's um, also very rugged. So there's not many landing spots. So we just slightly have to pick our landing spots quite accurately each time we set off. But we effectively lived on the beaches, paddling our kayak around the north coast of Iceland, occasionally seeing the odd human interacting with someone you know who was probably equally as bemused as we were to see them as they were to hear where we'd come from and what our story was at that point. It really did become a great adventure where we'd we'd kind of put one of the crossings behind us. And, you know, having done that crossing, we actually realised that what we'd set out to do was possible. For the first time, ever since we'd come up with this concept and built the boat and trained and practised, we were like, actually, you know what, Ollie? You know what, George? This expedition could be possible. We might not die in the next six weeks. Our emotions were really high. Our morale was great until we got smashed by another storm, of course. <laughs> and then we found ourselves having to bail into a, uh, into a different bay, try and get onto the beach without breaking ourselves out or the boat. And then we lived in a, lived in a rescue shelter because <laughs> the tent wouldn't go out because it was so windy. Honestly, some terrifying moments as well around the coast of Iceland, but also some amazing ones. Iceland is an incredible country. They call it the land of fire and ice. Everything steams and hisses. Glaciers and volcanoes carve the landscape. Here on the north coast, it's rugged and raw, but vast and awe-inspiring too. Fjords with enormous cliffs and headlands, an absolutely remote and pristine wilderness. But it's also dangerous. Storms come out of nowhere. Waves can suddenly reach as high as 12 feet in a kayak. George says that it felt like being hit by a house. Water crashes over the boat, and often there's nowhere to land, just endless sheer cliffs with rocky surf below that would crush the boat. They paddled hard, crossed over to the east side of Iceland, past the storms and raging fjords, catching fish and camping out on beaches as they went. It was hard. They nearly capsized and died more than once. But it was also stunningly beautiful and inspiring. Sixteen long, hard, exhausting, amazing days later, they pulled into the launch point for their third and most dangerous leg, crossing the Devil's Dance Floor from Iceland to the Faroe Islands. And if they thought that last ocean crossing was risky, this required a whole other level of commitment. You paddle or you die. A hundred percent it was more committed because for much longer... It was notorious. The sea was notorious. It's called the Devil's Dance Floor, and rightly so. It's where the northerly running Gulf Stream meets the southerly flowing currents from the Arctic, and the seabed shallows, and it is, um, it is, I think, ferocious is the right term for it. If we were caught in a storm in a kayak, there is no middle ground. We will be fighting for our lives. We wouldn't be able to sleep because the kayak would uh, capsize. So it immediately becomes a survival situation. But this time, on this crossing, as we um, pushed the kayak back into the water, I kind of knew what was ahead of us, actually. I understood the perils of the ocean, and that kayak, which I was pushing into the water, could actually be my coffin. And that's a pretty striking thought, <laughs> that you're pushing into the ocean your, your own your own deathbed. And the moment that you I touched land for the last time wasn't with that naivety which I had before, it was with full knowledge what lay ahead and the difficulties of what lay ahead because we were aiming for the Faroe Islands and the Faroe Islands is very small tiny target to aim for they were so small but not only that they are the north coast of the Faroes where we were aiming for is actually mostly vertical rock which comes out of the ocean and goes up to approximately I don't know four or five hundred foot so there was no landing spots there we had to aim for a tiny beach tucked in behind one of these bays called Chornvik Bay 
and the beach itself was approximately 100 yards wide. So we had hundreds of miles of ocean to cross and approximately 100 yards worth of beach to aim for on the other side. <laughs> so, and I'm the guy who's steering this vessel, you know, I, I um, you know, it was totally me. So I just felt this added pressure that if we went wrong by a degree, or next up might be England. And if we miss England, then we're aiming for the continent. <laughs> to put that into perspective, in a kayak, you're only a few inches off the water. So your horizon is very short, very limited. So for George to hit that tiny beach 300 miles away across a vast and disorientating ocean is like trying to find your way through a maze in the dark when you can only see a few inches in front of your face. And if you get lost, well, George is right. That kayak could be your coffin. Because what he doesn't say is that the crossing to the Faroe Islands would take them six days, but they could only get an accurate weather forecast for three. So for those final three days, they were rolling the dice. Anything could happen. They really could be paddling out in their deathbed. And in fact, it very nearly was. So we touched land for the last time and we headed for the horizon, over which we hoped existed the pharaohs, you know, over which we hope existed our survival. And I remember that day very clearly because it's very foggy, actually. And fog at sea is very disorientating. Everything looks the same. You feel like you're paddling in circles. But again, you have to trust your compass. You have to trust your instruments. There's no features to see. There's no like, oh, we're at that T-jump. We're at that hedgerow. We're at that wave. It's a constantly changing environment where there's no features. So it's very disorientating. The going, the conditions weren't ideal for us. It was very slow. Um, So we would be paddling for three days and had a couple of sleeps and it was still pretty foggy, pretty turbulent waters, and it was very hard going. And we were like thinking at this rate, you know, it was going to take us quite a long time to get to the ferries. It's going to take us more than our allotted uh, allotted time period. We carried ten days worth of food on on board the kayak to get us to the ferries. It was going to be more than that, and we were looking, staring down the barrel of two weeks and more, starving at sea. We got to day three. We just woken up. Ollie had just gone to the loo bear in mind I'm in, I'm in a seat behind him about three foot behind Ollie so I have um, front row seats to watch him go to the loo and then I also have a great opportunity to offer feedback on his stool as it floats past me suddenly we hear the sound of an engine we're 70 80 miles offshore at this stage no land inside we hear the sound of an engine and what is completely remarkable about this story uh, is that we are totally invisible when we are at sea as a kayak you know we are probably about three foot off the surface our head top of our heads are and we basically disappear behind any wave and you're in the middle of the north atlantic ocean uh, in the devil's dance floor and the chance of anyone seeing you is minimal you just disappear so quickly behind behind waves the fact that this boat saw us was just extraordinary and uh they came over to us 80 miles offshore and they were like, you know, these guys are fishermen. They've been fishing at sea for 27 years, I think. They'd never seen anything like this before. Two people <laughs> in a kayak. I never forget this guy who looked like Thor. Honestly, he had a beard like down his ankles and came out this side port in this boat. And he was like proper Icelandic. He was like, what are you doing? Are you okay? <laughs> and we were like, um, yeah. We're fine. We're like, um, we're kayaking, actually. <laughs> Not wanting to sound like, you know, uh, disrespectful to him. And he goes, um, where are you from? <laughs> we're like, we're England. You know, they were like, all right, I understand. <laughs> I understand everything. And the next words that came out of his mouth were that there's a storm coming between 40 to 60 knots. 60 knots is a hurricane. And a hurricane at sea in a kayak is a death sentence. And they basically begged us to come with them, to get, you know, put their, our kayak on the roof of this, of this boat and come with them. And Ollie and I literally went, you know what, it's, it's, it's a really hard one, but um, I think we should say no. And we did. We said no, no thanks to our only chance of survival. We paddled on towards the horizon, carried on, and they went back to their fishing. They, motored off back in the other direction where they came from. In my head, I was like, what the fuck have we just done? 
you know, two, three, four hours passed and we'd paddle over the horizon, they'd go back to the fishing. Suddenly, we hear the sound of another engine. These guys came back to find us. The chances of them doing this twice is next to zero. And the same guy I thought came out of the same portal and he was like, look guys, we've spoken to the Icelandic Coast Guard and they really want you to come home. And they also said, we really want you to come with us, but we can't force you. And this is like your last chance. Ollie and I looked at each other and we were like, okay, let's call our weather forecasters. And we had um, three weather forecasters, a Scottish guy, a Welsh guy, and an American. And the American was like, hi, it's pretty bad out there. I think um, it's got worse, actually. So um, get on the boat. The Scotsman was like, hi, pal, it's pretty bad out there. Probably shouldn't have left in the first place, but uh, get on the boat. All right, be good. Get on. Anyway, the Welsh guy was like, hey, no, don't you worry, pal. Just get on. Be all right. <laughs> we had you know, five opinions, uh, including all our three weather forecasters and the Coast Guard and the fishermen. Four of them said get on the boat. So we we accepted their offer and lifted our kayak onto the roof of their boat. And we lived like Icelandic fishermen for the next week. I laying 20, 10 miles of fishing line, 20,000 hooks, catching cod in a sustainable fashion for the UK shells. And it was... A remarkable experience where these guys plucked us out of the ocean and we had front row seats to watch the storm unfold in front of us. A storm which would have maybe killed us. Uh, led to a extraordinary adventure where, you know, I enjoyed every moment of living like an Icelandic fisherman and made some great friends in doing so. That is one of the most amazing stories I have ever heard. They said no. These fishermen, out of the blue, like a miracle, appear from the fog to rescue them, to tell them there's a hurricane coming, which is a death sentence. And they look at each other and are like, nah, I think we're good, which is just crazy. But then to be found again, to be rescued again, is maybe the luckiest survival story I have ever heard. It's called the Devil's Dance Floor, but he obviously liked their moves because someone was watching out for them that day. They lived on board for a week, earning their keep, working with the crew. And by the way, just as an aside, I love George's impressions. I think they're brilliant. But did anyone else think that Icelandic fisherman turned a bit Yoda at the end? Anyway, after that week, the fishermen dropped them back on land, back on Iceland where they started. And there they waited for the weather to improve and waited and waited until eventually the devil gave them a window. The summer season was nearly over. It was now or never. One thing I remember from that crossing was like deep, dark, aggressive, squally clouds. And there's one, one night, the sun was setting because at this stage it was getting dark. You know, the, the nights were very, yeah, very sinister at sea, very silent, very quiet. These dark squalls were all around us. And honestly, I thought that night was going to be a rough night. Somehow, again, someone must be watching over us. But you know, we managed to dance our way through these squalls, school clouds, and, and not get hit by um, hit by any of them. The next real emotion I remember was was seeing the Faroe Islands appear over the horizon. I suddenly felt, oh my god, I think we've made it. You know, you suddenly have an excuse to think uh, that you might have survived. And as the Faroes grew closer and closer over the course of the day, the next thing I really remember was the sunset the following night as we kind of arrived into the Faroes. And it was the most beautiful but aggressive sunset. The sun was setting over our trap where we'd just come from. And it was like full of deep reds, vibrant oranges and like punchy blacks in the sky. It was really dramatic and it just said to me I just thought in my head you know that we just crossed the devil's dance floor but that sunset is the devil telling me you've crossed it this time but never come back again because it will not end like this there's a lovely moment in the film of this expedition the Red Bull film which I'll link to on the episode page of the website when they land in the dark on the pharaohs, they've done it. They've crossed the hardest section of water. They'd hit that tiny sliver of beach. They dodged the storms. They'd rolled the dice and won. And George just lets out this awesome primal cheer. Yes, come on. And then he's just like, never bloody doing that again. Which is fair enough because the devil had let them pass. But the devil also had a few tricks left in store. 
we had to wait quite a long time for a weather window from the Faroe Islands. It was getting quite late in the season. You know, it was pushing into September. You know, at this point, the weather windows become fewer and further between them, but also shorter. So at this point, it was becoming a bit of a race against time as to whether if we were going to complete this journey in one season. And, you know, we ended up living on the Faroe Islands for the best part of like two weeks, three weeks. You know, they're such an amazing people. We live with this guy called Barty and he's just a guy who I need to go and see again. And they give him a big fat hug because he's just such a nice man. He welcomed these two smelly, hairy kayakers into his house with open arms. And it's just that generosity is phenomenal. And we were ready to go, waited for three weeks and finally had this, what we thought could be a weather window. And we're like, let's, let's go for it. Let's go, 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 go. You know, ran down to the beach touched land for the last time I realised what was happening here again I was like oh my god this is totally terrifying so I took a massive gulp of water you know, to try and overhydrate myself because I thought well if I took my MP you know, one, for one day I think an extra day out of not carrying any extra water genius is it genius though I mean you hear stories of people surviving in the desert by drinking their own pee or whatever but that's an act of desperation and survival to pre-plan to drink your own pee is something else altogether. But actually, there was a kind of gross logic behind it. Being at sea is a very dry place, right, weirdly, because there's so much salt water around you, but you can't drink salt water. So you have to drink fresh water, obviously. And uh, we didn't carry with us desalinated because they're heavy, they're cumbersome, they are inefficient. So we just didn't carry it. We just thought we'd bottle fresh water in, in bladders and carry that. And so we, only had, we had a limited supply of fresh water. So I was like, if I, when I leave land, I overhydrate. So I, you know, knock back two or three litres in the space of an hour. And then as soon as I need to pee, I'll piss into a bottle. And it's mostly water anyway. This is my theory. Which it was. It was completely white and fine. And, you know, I just chucked it in, in, in between my legs and let it sit there for a bit and cooled it down. <laughs> And then I got it back out again and it was sort of cool and tasted like fresh water. I just sort of hold my nose and knocked it back. And then suddenly I hadn't touched my fresh water reserves, yet I paddled for a day and a half, which I thought was genius. I, I hate to say that I was, I was also the head chef on board, this, on board this kayak and I was dressed in a flannel suit and we had cooking situations quite precarious too. We had a, a jet boil, which is basically like a small cylinder of gas and you'd screw on top the, the stove bit and then you'd screw onto the stove a pan of boiling, not pan, a bottle of boiling water, which is quite tall and thin, so more like a towel. But I had to put that in between my legs. And there was me like wearing a fully flammable suit with a naked flame in between my legs and you know, drinking my own pee and getting confused between what what's piss and what's what's not piss and what's gonna go in the in the freeze-dried food and whatever for the night. Fair enough. Remind me not to come to your house for dinner. But as it turns out, dodgy dinners and drinking their own pee were the least of their worries. And by the way, if you're not familiar with the Faroe Islands, they are a remote archipelago almost midway between Iceland and Scotland, 200 miles from the North Scottish coast. They are a world unto themselves. 18 tiny islands with their own language, their own culture and way of life, totally adrift in the middle of the North Atlantic Sea. It's a beautiful place. It's a hard place. And it's a place they didn't want to leave. Because although they beat the devil's dance floor, they weren't home yet. And they still had hundreds of miles of open sea in front of them. If they could just get across without hitting a storm, they'd be okay. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. We're paddling towards Scotland, our last leg, uh, hallucinating so much because we just basically left in such a rush and so desperate to get there. Uh, and we were so tired. Then finally collapsed after like three days of paddling, non-stop, no sleep. And um, fell asleep in our boat, woke up, and I genuinely thought we floated into a bay. I could hear these waves crashing around me and that we were going to like be marooned on these rocks. And I was like, Ollie, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up! <laughs> anyway, it was fine. It was just a pod of dolphins breathing around us. It sounded like waves crashing onto the beach, onto the rocks. I was like, okay, we're fine, we're fine, don't panic. Anyway, so already this leg of the journey was a bit, a bit fraught with, um, <laughs> with, with stories and situations. Needless to say, then when we checked in with our weather forecast guys, they were like, we've got a huge storm coming. We think we should go to this place called North Rona. North Rona is one of the most isolated rocks in the British Isles. It's approximately 60 nautical miles from the north coast of Scotland. And there's no food and no running water. And there's nowhere to land a kayak, really. It's pretty rocky. Only a line paddled straight there as quick as we could. And three hours after we landed, this storm, bam, hit. <laughs> Honestly, if we'd been at sea, we'd have been buggered. Uh, we'd be done, for sure. It was Force 9, 
Force 10, proper, proper nasty storm. And we were like crouched on this rock precariously in the middle of the normal navigation with no food and no running water. <laughs> so on and I were like, right. Um, <laughs> situation report. Uh, we have you know, two days worth of food, which we need to get to Scotland. We have no water and no food. Good. <laughs> so we, and a storm, so we can't go anywhere. So we basically set about going around this tiny island collecting food. We lived off crustaceans, limpets, bits of seaweed, uh, even seagulls, or basically anything we could find. Remarkably, on this island, there is actually also a, a great seal colony. And every summer, scientists go out to this island to study this colony because they're quite remote, pretty special, uh, pretty isolated. And um, because of this, there is there is a hut yes so we lived in this hut we had a wind-up radio and i rigged up this like extra long aerials and we listened to bbc radio scotland <laughs> which was truly bizarre when you're like you're on this deserted island in the middle of the north atlantic 60 miles from scotland and there's some beautiful person on the end of the radio being like aye there's some pretty bad weather uh, happening on um, on the fourth road bridge you know terrible queues going around the first and fourth and I was just like oh my god this is dreamy you know it's such a difference uh, in perspectives and situations they were there for six days hunting and gathering to survive as gales blew and tore up the ocean all around them it's an unbelievably exposed tiny piece of rock just so vulnerable they survived on a diet of whatever they could find BBC Scotland traffic reports and half a bottle of whiskey left over in the bothy that must have been the best drop of their life. Until finally, the weather cleared, they got back in the boat, and the end, a 15-hour crossing now, that's it, was finally in sight. I was almost upset to leave this paradise island where there was no other humans, and it was just a beautiful existence where Ollie and I completely existed in absolute harmony with the environment. You know, we only ate what was on offer. It felt like a different world. It felt like I was leaving one beautiful world and paddling towards another, another world which I might not necessarily love as much or take away as many memories from. But of course, I was super looking forward to seeing people. And we were, you know, on and I were very confident at this stage. We were very happy paddling this up kayak across the water. You know, even just bearing, to put it in perspective for this journey, kayaking from Scotland to North Rona is, is a huge distance. It's a huge paddle and not to be taken lightly. But Ollie and I were a little bit more comfortable at this stage, having just crossed the North Atlantic Ocean. So this last hop, I'll call it, seemed very manageable. It didn't seem too big or scary and I really was then able to focus on finish line and what, what that might feel like too for the first time on this long journey it's something I try not to do too much to handle your mental side is to not think about the finish line but I sort of allowed my brain to get there you know I remember seeing the lighthouse on the north west coast of Scotland right in the top corner seeing the lighthouse and thinking that's like I just followed that that's just like a beacon of hope so I followed that through the night. In a course, these emotions of like, have we actually just achieved this? This seemingly impossible feat, which really no one wanted me to go on. Uh, I think in their heart of hearts, everyone who had told this about this conquest, this journey, this adventure, this expedition, was probably worried about whether I'd return or not. Some people might have been, <laughs> might have been more or less worried, but whatever. <laughs> it crossed their mind. <laughs> and... I think it was also this people said it wasn't possible, of course. And it was at this stage when I was starting to be like, actually, you know what, all those naysayers who said it wasn't possible was starting to be like, I can, I, I can forgive myself if I start to think this is maybe possible because I can see the finish line. And because we had such a long time in North Rona, you know, people could see our tracker and people were like, oh my God, we're going to come up. I'm going to come see you in. And we were like, yes come to the beach to see us this is going to be amazing it is going to be like you know we had time to rest at this stage we had time to recuperate and we had 60 miles of paddle and we just bash it out and then we're straight into like hugs and a party and we go to the pub that's in Balnakeel Bay on the north coast of Scotland it's tiny it's amazing it's like a tiny quintessential bar on a like, small outpost in the UK and it is just beautiful and I go and spend every last every last penny that I have in my pocket Anyway, we got to about five kilometers off the beach, and I could see, Ollie and I could see all of these bodies, all of these legs. All you can see is just like these outlines of bodies and legs. And I was like, oh my God, there's 
actually a crowd. I'm, I'm not joking you. There was actually a crowd, a crowd of bodies and legs. And I thought, what? this is amazing. Who of my friends or has done this for us? Who would do this for us? What a kind thing to do. How amazing. I'm so lucky to have my friend. And I got, Ollie and I got a little bit closer, like a kilometre, and realised that it was a herd of Aberdeen Angus cows. No one else was there. <laughs> it's just amazing. Just amazing. It was a herd of cows. I mean, they deserve more. They really did. But in some weird way, it was also a fitting end to the journey because it wasn't about crowds and fanfare. It was about a challenge. It was about overcoming fear and adversity and doing something everyone thought was impossible. And it was also about the Finmen. And perhaps that too is what would have greeted those mysterious fishermen blown off course 300 years ago from another world. Not cheers and congratulations, just the simple joy of solid ground, of a hot drink and a dry bed, of knowing they had lived, they had survived. And perhaps that's enough. They hadn't proved that the Finmen had come all the way from Greenland. It's impossible to prove something like that after so many centuries had passed. But they did prove that the journey itself was possible, that the myth was possible, that the voyage of the Finmen might just be real. But that proof was hard earned. And I wondered at the end of his journey, did he feel it was worth it? Did he feel it was worth the risk? I love that feeling. I love feeling small and insignificant because it puts you back in your shoes. It puts you back in the rightful shoes that we need to be in. It puts you back in touch with nature. Pulls all of the worries that you have for the future, you know, financial worries, whatever they might be, it pulls them right back in. You're suddenly like, right, I'm fed, I'm watered, and I'm warm. Oh my God, I'm so happy. <laughs> that is all you think about. And that, that feeling of vulnerability is something which a lot of humans on this planet today have never felt. Feeling that vulnerable for a period of time is something that most humans really will have never experienced. And I think it's to their detriment because actually feeling vulnerable and exposed and so small and insignificant and powerless just makes me so humble as to, makes me so thoughtful personally as to what's like out there, what's beyond us and so grateful and so thankful for everything that we have that you know i don't there's not a day that goes by when i'm not oh my gosh i'm, I'm so lucky to have warm water coming out of this tap and for me that's just, just some amazing things i love feeling grateful for that such a basic thing gratitude is the key to everything i really believe that it's like the ultimate mind hack for happiness but so much of life comes easy to us now so it's easy to take it for granted it's hard to appreciate it to be grateful for the little moments, the sunsets, the hot showers, the kind word from a friend, the not having to drink your own pee. And perhaps he's right. Maybe there is a relationship between gratitude and risk. Perhaps risk because it humbles us and makes us vulnerable. It's like a shortcut to gratitude. That by risking all we have, we can appreciate all we have too. And those risks don't have to be big things. For God's sake, don't kayak across an ocean unless you really really want to and know what the hell you're doing. But by allowing yourself to feel insignificant and small, by putting yourself at the mercy of the vastness of nature in big ways and in small ways too, then we can perhaps understand our place in it better and be grateful for all that it provides. That's George's mission, to rewild us, to reconnect us with that spirit so that we can live every second of every day to the full. I think if there's a message that I'd love to leave you, I think it is twofold. First one, we're all so rich, okay? We're rich in a particular bank. It's a bank called the Time Bank. And every day you can go and draw out money. You actually have a certain amount of money each day. You have 86,000 units, okay? And none of those units can be stored at bank. There's no repayments every single day the bank hands you 86,000 of these units and you can spend them however you like. And that's just a phenomenal thing. But you can never take them back to the bank. You can never get a refund and you can never store them at the bank either. You have to spend them. And, you know, we have this phenomenal choice as to how we do that. We're so such a fortunate species to be able to choose how we spend 
those views. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. At the end of the day, if you find that you know, you've, you've still got units left over, you haven't spent them, you've actually used these units, these units of time uh, incorrectly because you actually have 6,400 seconds in the day to spend however you want. And that also equates to just the average person in the UK lives to uh, 71, 71 years old, roughly. And that equates to 25,915 days. And you have, you on average have these days to do what you'd like with. The, the onus is on no one else apart from, apart from yourselves to do what you want with those days and to spend that 86,000 seconds how you want. No one else is going to help you spend those. And for me, that's always an incredibly inspiring uh, or incredibly motivating analogy. And my second analogy is is more of an acronym. It's my ABC of life. And it's kind of how I live all the time. A stands for ambition. I know that every single person listening has an ambition. That ambition might be anything, anything under the sun. But you have to be B, A, B, a brave person to say, actually, you know, I, this is this is a dream of mine. I'm, you need to be a courageous person and a brave person to say, actually, this is what I really want to do. I really want to do this. And I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of things. But you've got to be brave to do that. And C stands for carpe diem. And it's a Latin phrase. And carpe diem means seize the day. You have 25,915 days on this planet. And if you're not willing to seize it today, then tomorrow may be too late. You have 25,950 days on this planet. And if you're my age, you've lived about half of them already. What are you going to do with the rest? What are you going to do with those 86,000 units today? Make them count. Have courage. Seize the day. And remember, as the French author André Gide said, you cannot discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Thank you, George. Thank you for taking us on this incredible adventure, this voyage of the Finman. Please go and connect with George right now on social media. He's an amazing guy to follow at George Bullard Explorer across Instagram and Facebook. And if this inspires you to take on your own adventure on sea, land, ice, or anything in between, then head over to igoadventures.com. That's igoadventures.com. And George will personally curate your next epic trip. And if you're very lucky, he may also be your guide for it too though he promises not to do the cooking and not to mix up the bottles. His website is georgebullard.co.uk, where you can find out more about him and book him for motivational speeches. Check it out. I also want to give a big shout out to my man Ladler, who did the audio engineering and sound design on this episode. He's an amazing musician and up and coming producer. He writes awesome tunes and he's hilarious. Go check out his Instagram and TikTok. You will literally laugh your ass off. The handle is at Ladler. That's L-A-D-L-E-R for both of those. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. We have lots more coming up and your support means the world to me. Please help spread the word, subscribe, leave one of those five-star reviews, tell a fellow explorer or just someone who needs an escape. We are building a community of people who love the outdoors, who love adventure, and who love exploring this amazing planet of ours. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.